welcome to the Palladium Podcast episode 16. Uh, it's been a hot minute. We've published several pieces since the last episode. So uh, what we're going to do is some extended discussion about those recent articles, uh, which have been following the theme of integration and, and social fabrics. So I'll just list some of the articles here if, if anyone wants to, to catch up on those before they come back to listening to the podcast. I highly recommend that. There's um, From Zacatecas to Mission Control, A Story of Assimilation and Its Future. That's by Seth Largo. Uh, we've got Radicalization and Redemption, My Time on a Terror, terror Trial Jury by Wolf Tybee. I, I highly, highly recommend that one. The Siren Call of, of Video Games Amid Decaying Social Fabric by Keegan McNamara and the late Soviet echoes of Canada's pessimistic economy by Avi. Um, as usual, I'm joined by Ash and Wolf here at the podcast, the other the other editors at Palladium. Hey guys. How's it, how's it going, guys? Not bad. Yeah, it's great. Uh, glad to be back on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. Wolf, take it away. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, my idea for what we wanted to talk about this week is basically the last few articles have had this interesting theme you know, as we go through editing the articles and thinking about them and working with the authors and so on, we kind of identify what are the major, major like theoretical themes here? What can we actually kind of uh, think about in a bigger picture way when we're looking at kind of the, the concretes that are brought up in the article? And the theme that seems to have come up um, in, in the last four articles, I think, is um, especially the, the sort of earlier three of those is this theme of social fabric, specifically functionally organized social fabric of society. Um, so in Seth's article, Zacatecas to Mission Control, we have the story of a Mexican-American family um, integrating into American social fabric. And one of the major aspects of that is um, the author's grandfather, you know, went and, and joined the war effort um, in World War II. And then after the war, worked for a contractor who ended up working with the Apollo project. Um, and, and so you see this like very much kind of mixed in through the, through the core institutions of, of big collective effort in society. And so I thought that was interesting that like, you know, the branch of the family that really integrated well into American social fabric was also the branch that had been involved in these big uh, collective endeavors by American society. And then in the next article was, of course, my article um, on the terrorism trial that I got drafted into being for, for like six months, for yeah, like six, six months, six months of jury duty. Uh, back in 2015 uh, that was an interesting experience but basically like you know sitting there for six months thinking about what was going on with with uh, how people had fallen into radicalization and um, reflecting on the institutions that I was involved in in the trial and so on um, again this theme kind of comes up of people either having or not having participation in the main social fabric of society in terms of not just like, oh, they know people, but like, are they actually occupying a purposeful place in purposeful institutions? Um, so that's, 
that's the second article. And then the third one is um, Keegan's article on video games, which, you know, as we were working with him on kind of identifying the larger social themes that would be interesting to comment on, um, one of the things that came up is like, okay, well, why are people turning to video games? Why are people getting addicted to video games? And, you know, you talk to a lot of the people who are into that stuff and you introspect on it, you know, when we all have our sort of video game moments, uh, a lot of it is this kind of escapism from, you know, you're not really doing anything purposeful or meaningful in your real life. You don't really have opportunities for participation and video games offer this like alternate world where you're able to kind of exercise your skills more. You're able to be involved in something that, you know, if not ultimately purposeful, at least has the feeling of that. Um, and so we explored some of that theme there. Um, and then Avi's article, the latest article on Canada's economy and the Soviet echoes of, uh, of that with the specifically sort of the Brezhnev style um, bureaucratic class that's just trying to keep the status quo going, but is very much not dynamic. Um, again, we kind of commented on these, these factors of like, what does the actual social fabric look like? How is it functionally organized? And how does this affect how people live in society, whether people are optimistic or pessimistic? In the Canadian case, um, Avi made the case that people are quite pessimistic in Canadian society. And, and we were thinking, okay, well, this looks like one of the major reasons for pessimism is that the social fabric is just not actually set up to get anything done. And so it's very difficult to get things done. And so it's very difficult to believe in the upsides that would constitute optimism. Anyway, well, if so I can jump in there, uh, yeah. I, I think that in uh, the Canada piece, one of the most interesting sections there is in the opening, um, he interviews um, a, an individual who in the article we call T, who is a member of the Iranian diaspora uh, in Canada. And there's this interesting discussion that's had where T talks about his father had left Iran, uh, had done very well for himself. And by all objectives, purely economic standards, the family seems to have risen in the world and done better and better. Uh, but this weird thing ends up happening where first in Iran, a lot of the, the people that they had known there ended up doing even better than that. But there is also this sense, and this is what the article really becomes about, that the adopted country almost doesn't have a real unifying energy behind it. And you sort of mentioned this um, with regard to the article on assimilation. We're participating in this society-wide uh, you know, effort that united the country and was really felt in the level of popular consciousness. That actually spurred integration in a way. It sort of pulled people into wanting to be part of this great initiative and, you know, if you look at Iran today, uh, I mean, for the few decades now, they've had this role, which is unifying in a sense, or an adversary of the United States. More recently with ISIS, they ended up, they and their proxies uh, like Hezbollah ended up being able to unify people uh, in a sense. We've written about a, a bit about this previously as well. And there's this weird phenomenon where uh, with a lack up until the current moment of these unifying initiatives that orient the society first assimilation kind of doesn't happen in the same way but even when people have objective economic improvement 
they actually feel pessimistic and like they're doing worse. And that to me was like one of the, it's counterintuitive and a lot of people have written about this, but I, I think that stands out quite strongly to people reading this. I just want to actually back up for a second and uh, forward some, some healthy Peronian skepticism, which is to say, uh, what if the social fabric is just fine? What if you are, what if we are in, in the pieces and the, and the authors as well, completely over-exaggerating um, any problems there and, and that you know, the social fabric is intact? I'm curious what you guys would have to say in response to that. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got some other stuff I want to say eventually, but, but just in response to that, I mean, Avi made a pretty good case with some of those graphs that like, um, Isn't that more focused uh, on economics as opposed to social fabric? Yeah. So I guess the, the major theme here is that these things are very closely linked, right? Like it's very hard to have, you know, engineers feel like they're part of society when you have zero growth in any kind of engineering happening in Canada. Um, like, you know, I remember specifically the graph of real estate versus everything else in the economy. Um, well, specific, and, specifically IT and, and communications technology and manufacturing. To, and manufacturing, you know, which is supposed to represent Silicon Valley North. But if you look at the actual graph, it's, it's flat. It's essentially flat over the past, what, 10 years, something like yeah, this? Yeah, it was something, whereas real estate is just like going up. In other words, all the capital that exists in society is not going into like improvement or, or larger projects or anything. It's going into like trading houses with each other and then selling houses to uh, overseas next, investors. Yeah, and more importantly, that. that real estate is not owned by a lot of, especially the younger people, right? It's, it's, it's people who bought decades ago or it's speculators. So the sense is that where there is growth, most younger people at least can't participate in it. So what growth happens, they're being left out of. So, so as like back to the skepticism on like, what is the social fabric yes. thing that we're talking about? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to sort of define what is this thing that we're talking about? And how do we think it works? Um, and, and like I said, I sort of alluded to earlier, like, I don't think that the social fabric is just, you know, having friends and whatnot, or at least like, okay, imagine, imagine a country that is, you know, basically the same in terms of number of people and an economic kind of well-being in terms of like, can people feed themselves and whatever. And it basically people's only social fabric is that they have friends and family. Um, you're really talking about almost like a pre-civilized tribal society at that point. Like there isn't this, this larger, there's sort of like no sense in which that thing is a society because it's just a bunch of individuals linked to each other in, in a sparse web. Um, now that you could argue that like, okay, well, that's fine. You know, as long as people have good integrated social fabric with their family and so on and their friends, uh, you know, they're doing fine. But like, that's, that's one dimension that I think we should pay attention to is like, are we, is there a sense in which we're talking about, a society that can actually be defined as as one thing or is it just like a piece of land with a bunch of people living on it um and just briefly coming back to to uh t's example like you know we've talked to him um uh, on some occasions and like one of the things he says in response to some of the, the thoughts that were in this article is like um you know it's, it, canada is not necessarily 
a compelling society. It's kind of just a hotel and well, a cruise ship is a better hotel because it's almost cheaper given the level that you have to pay for the land and so on. Like because of the Canadian real estate economy, you have to like, you know, you're, you're paying for all this land speculation and so on. Um, and, and the monopoly pricing in the rent. Whereas, uh, you know, if you just go live on a cruise ship, it's <laughs> not, it's not significantly more expensive. In fact, it might be cheaper. Um, and so like, that's an interesting question is like, you know, has your country just become a hotel and, okay. a, and a cruise ship makes a better hotel? More Peronian skepticism here. What if, uh, in a sense, that is the, that is the ideal state because, you know, historically you could point to many examples of comprehensive, uh, comprehensive, uh, visions of the good mm -hmm. resulting in societal collapse and, and complete orgies of violence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, whereas, so whereas under liberalism, you know, you get the opportunity to essentially uh, answer that question for yourself or, or your group. Yeah. So and let I me think, jump, think... jump in because I think there's an interesting comparison to be made, right? We, you know, we can look at various times, maybe in American history, where uh, you have a, a president who is now remembered as being a great president like Lincoln uh, or FDR and... and they always are operating in what is essentially becoming a mass society, right? Where people are able through media, through institutions, through technology to coordinate on a quite wide scale. I almost wonder, because even uh, in the Enlightenment period, in, in the 1700s and 1800s, you start getting, you know, that's really when you start getting literature on alienation, like the Romantic movement, for example. It was one of the great first widespread and enduring responses to alienation in the industrial era and after the French Revolution. I, I wonder where in, say, the medieval period, right, when your frame of reference is pretty much your, your village or town uh, and maybe some of the institutions around it, and there's no real central infrastructure, uh, you know, is it just that there is no outlet for the same kind of alienation and so we just don't hear about it or does it somehow not exist? Like, is the sense, given that these mass phenomena seem to be the things driving a sense of belonging, does that only exist in a mass society? Is that contingent on things like technology? It's a question I sort of have been wrestling with. I don't know the answer to it. It's an interesting question. If we think that we can... Uh, decouple liberalism from industrialization, then is it actually industrialization? Uh, is is that the the central problem here? And the only reason we've misidentified it as the salient variable as as liberalism generating these problems is because historically we have thought, or at least some people have thought, that those two concepts have been uh, coupled together, or mm -hmm. one follows from the other. Well, because liberalism, uh, at least with the focus on the individual and the state and that dynamic, is contingent on industrialization. I mean, the answer here would basically be, is it possible to have a non-liberal industrialized society which does not I experience so. alienation? Yes. I don't... Or I wonder well, about this, because, you know, China is obviously the one people would point to, but the same... Thing yeah, there is an alienation. alienation subculture there too, um, you know, and and our piece in the house churches uh, that well Taji he touched on this a little bit where um, the growth of like religion uh, among urbanite or educated urbanites in China is usually talked about in you know they're alienated from a very now consumeristic society 
And well, so, and, and obviously, uh, the, the Xinjiang article as well touches on this, just like the fact that you have this minority in Western China that does feel alienated from the rest of China to the point of, of you know, in some cases becoming violently opposed to the rest of China. Uh, okay. and, and I don't know if that's just industrial creating, alienation, though. That that also has yeah, a, an imperial also, dynamic there. So Yeah, so there's the, the imperial and religious dynamics there as well, but like, Again, coming back to like how much the strength of the central social fabric determines how much people actually integrate, um, it, like they're having to do these measures, these very harsh measures to to control the Uyghur population, um, you know, potentially because they actually aren't offering them, um, they're not able to offer them sort of a good deal. Yeah, well, there's, uh, you know, to touch on uh, Jonah's initial question, there's kind of two ways you could talk about this, right? The one is objective and it's like okay there is an objective standard for a healthy society and here's what it looks like and we can judge uh ours in relation to that the other one is subjective and it's basically do people feel integrated i mean you yeah. could make an argument so, maybe that that a a sense of alienation can occur in a healthy society that's actually somehow disordered it's not the result of the society but of some you mean the other... alienation itself is disordered yeah so for example um you know say everyone can have some picture of a society they think is fundamentally healthy and they can probably you know in, in all likelihood there would be some kind of underworld that rejected that but if you agree with the society then you would see that that underworld's alienation is sort of like it's not quite legitimate somehow uh there's something wrong yeah, so, with that so underworld i i have two arguments I, you know coming back to jonah's question about like okay how do we know that any of this is even legitimate um do we have any arguments for why we might expect kind of a uh a social fabric like we have to actually be worse um, than, than like some alternative we can imagine. So, so one of the arguments is a liberal argument. The other argument is a non-liberal argument. Um, and so the liberal argument is like, you know, without challenging the, the ontology of liberalism and so on, people need or people want um, these social goods in terms of like connection with other people and so on. But it's actually a coordination problem to to connect to those people and build that social infrastructure. And if that social infrastructure and like, so it's, if there's no central support for that and people are spending all their resources and um, effort working on, you know, their day job or whatever, then you're basically not going to have people building that social fabric um, you don't like you don't you're not don't have anyone really in a position to solve that coordination problem because you don't have anyone in a position to to kind of organize social authority and social power um, like, like to, to create social fabric inherently requires leadership right it requires sort of moving a bunch of people into a social configuration that they would not otherwise be in um, and you can imagine that being done with like purely market kind of mechanisms like nightclubs and bars and stuff um, but you also have things like, you know, church parishes, social clubs, fraternities, all the, all the sort of traditional social participation, um, institutions. And I think if, I think that basically the argument that I would make is that those things kind of just don't happen unless society overall in its main social fabric is supporting them happening and, and I mean, like, at, 
is in some way actively supporting them. Like there was this huge growth of civic institutions in I think the late 19th century. Um, you guys correct me on this if I'm wrong. I'm, I don't actually know the details of the case, but it, it like if you look at all these major institutions like um, the YMCA, the Greek fraternities and colleges, a lot of the colleges themselves, um, a, a lot of the civic organizations and so on. Like if you trace sort of like where all these things came from, and Robert, Robert's Rules of Order, for example, um, if you trace where all these things come from, they come from this particular period in, in American history where there was a lot of that stuff getting built. And I think there was sort right, of like, like the a, age of philanthropy. Yeah, but not just philanthropy, including like an age of, of sort of like civic organization. Civic organization is, is a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, and I think that must happen when basically the central social fabric of society and the elite is is behind that happening. Like one of our big theses um, that we often toss around at Palladium is basically that like things things don't happen um on a wide scale in society unless the uh unless it's basically like actively sponsored in, or yeah more or less actively sponsored by uh by the central institutions and central social powers um that's not like strictly true we could get into sort of nitpicks on that but but like as a first approximation um, I wouldn't expect to see people building a lot of social fabric without central support. And so one of the things that these, these like um, big collective projects and these sort of centrally organized social integration uh, or, or projects that have the side effect of social integration, these projects that vacuum up a bunch of human capital and organize it towards some end, um, those projects have as this huge side effect that they connect a bunch of people, create a bunch of social bonds and create a bunch of auxiliary social fabric that I think people individually like acting as individuals might not have been able to create. And so this, this is like the, the it was very long winded, but, but that's like my, my first argument for why I think like from a theoretical perspective, why I think um, you wouldn't get a lot of, good social fabric of the kind that people actually want without um, a lot of sort of social support. Um, now, well, so touching, and, and, if I can just uh, respond there, touching on the question. Hold, hold on, hold on. Let, sure. let, me, just, let me just finish off the, the thought here because like, that was just purely a theoretical argument. And, and of course, we should get into the concretes. Like, does that actually ob obtain, right? Um, and I think this shows up basically in... Um, a lot of the numbers on social participation, social fabric, like, you know, how much are marriages staying together? How many people actually have real friends? How much are people getting married? How much are people having kids? Uh, how much are people actually participating in civic organization? Like anything that you might define as social fabric, like are people actually doing that stuff? Are they actually happy with their situation on that front? And is that changing over time? One of the, now, I, one of the proxies I like to use is... is uh, the, the uh, dramatic decline of of vices of a sort of like social character, uh, and and basically the reason for for that is because uh, certain vices, or rather an explanation of this is that certain vices can only take uh, place in a social context, and so if that social context or social fabric doesn't exist, you would expect these sorts of vices to plummet and more 
individual centric vices to take their place. Can so you give us examples of that stuff? Pornography versus brothels. Yeah. Something. <laughs> right. Sure. I wouldn't necessarily use that example. But I think I guess it's a powerful example. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Vices that are more self-directed as opposed to any vice that you could uh, think of occurring at, say, like in, in, in a party context or a social context. Right. Um, and you could just go down a list and, or look at, at, at graphs of this. Uh, these things, these sorts of things already exist. Yeah. And, and so like another, another kind of argument that we might throw out here is just like the degree to which college is so heavily valued in today's society and like getting into the right schools and so on. Um, a lot of that is because those institutions are the only ones left that do have the like that do have a lot of social fabric creation attached to them uh like a lot of people's networks like people who don't otherwise get into kind of um some other network which is which is most people like most people who don't go out and like create new networks for themselves um their main social network is college and or like their college friends and so on and and those institutions are really like romanticized as the center of social life or, or part of the center of social life or like getting into the right neighborhoods and so on, you know, by, by paying enormous amounts of money, um, is, is another thing that's like, uh, very central in, in a certain class of people in the United States. And, and so like, I find that interesting that like the, the institutions, the sort of like only remaining institutions with many of the, um, you know, traditional kind of extracurricular social fabric things uh, in decline, like, you know, the Masons and the Elks Club and fraternities and civic organizations and so on. People don't do a lot of that stuff anymore, but people are uh, still very, very strongly, um, it, like, the, the, the demand for college is very strong. And I don't think it's just the credentialing thing. I think there's a lot of, like, you want to get people into, you want to get your kids into a network where, they're actually going to have some social fabric and so on. I think like there's an interesting degree to which the colleges have monopolized social fabric. And that's part of why they're so expensive right now. They're just the incredible demand for that. Um, so that's just a, a side thought, but I mean, so I, I don't have the numbers memorized or like on off the top of my head on like how much the, and we haven't really done this analysis of like whether social fabric really is, worse now or getting better or whatever but like i my impression is a lot of the symptoms of what i would expect to be bad social fabric seem to be getting worse or at least like on a half century time scale seem to be I, getting I think worse that's downplaying it we have pretty good data proxies for this yeah perhaps i'm, I'm uh, like my impression from the data is is that it's you know not going well however i don't have like decisive figures that i'm going to cite right now is what i'm saying do you think that uh, digital has been an adequate replacement for in-person? Because obviously, I think people have built. I mean, there, this there this comes back to the this like comes Twitch. back. Maybe this, I should start a video game streaming. <laughs> <laughs> right. So no. th this this comes back to um, my argument about the underworld in my article, where like when people don't have the main social fabric what happens is they sort of create their own social fabric, they create their own meaning and so on. And a lot of us and a lot of people have done that via the internet. 
Um, and the internet has really like blown open this ability to just like go find like-minded people and build some kind of semblance of community. And some of those things have transitioned into like real life social fabric and some of them have not. Um, and, and I think unfortunately a lot of the stuff that happens on the internet and has happened on the internet by being essentially cut off from the main social fabric of society, kind of a lot of it ends up going in really weird and antisocial directions. And that's the, obviously the impetus behind, um, a lot of the worry among, uh, you know, elite circles right now about like the effect of social media on creating filter bubbles and, you know, radicalizing people and spreading bad, you know, fake news and so on. Like, I think that is their articulation of the problem where they're seeing that a bunch of people are kind of creating this alternate social fabric that has no reason to be pro-social. Well, the distinction between the top-down initiatives, uh, civic society-building initiatives that we were mentioning from the 19th century versus this, I think... uh, I think the distinction is important because the thing that happens is, right, when if, if you are part of the establishment, essentially, if you control um, a, a wide scale of social economic power, etc., then when you suddenly decide, okay, there, there's too much disintegration, we need to build, uh, rebuild civic institutions, you can pretty much, um, you know, you can make those closed group fairly easily. Um, like even though you're trying to reach out to people who've been alienated in some way, you more or less, if you're creating a foundation or something, you have the ability to control who gains access and who doesn't quite easily. The difference yeah. with the bottom-up initiatives, like be it a hippie commune or be it on the internet, is that that really doesn't happen. And so that's when the spiraling starts. And so having the central coordination from the get-go um, I mean, one can kind of argue sometimes, well, then in that case, that isn't really spontaneous or isn't authentic somehow. I, I'm not sure that's well, yeah, necessarily true. But the fact <laughs> is, well, no, I mean, yeah, they're not, none of these things end up being fully spontaneous in the end. But I, I think the thing that's being pointed out is that uh, it's it's not considered spontaneous because it is actually planned. But the thing is that planning ability gives it enduring resilience. Yeah, well, and and I think it integrates it into the main social fabric of society much more effectively. Like, you know, any any social organization has some sense of its purpose and how it fits into wider society. And a lot of the ones that are um, sort of what I would call alienated social fabric or the underground, um, those things are going to tend to be hostile to main society because their basic vision is like, well... We're not integrated into main society, not because of anything we've necessarily done, but just like they're not kind of palling out with us. Uh, we don't see a way to get integrated. And so, well, I guess we have to blow everything up and create our own society. And so there's this, this kind of like inherent oppositional um, stance to the underground social fabric, whereas the, um, the stuff created by the system is going to be created within the purpose structure of the system. And thereby, you know, it's going to be much more integrated into the main society and the people participating in it are going to pick up on that and be like, okay, well, I'm occupying this little place in the main structure of society. And so I understand how I fit into society. I understand like my role and, and, and society's obligations to me and my obligations to society and so on. And, and so I think like the thing actually just being part of the main order 
um, ha has large sort of social implications. In, and this is where we start to get into, you know, I mentioned I had two arguments. I've, I've given the liberal argument. This is where we start to get into the non-liberal argument where we have to really break out of liberal anthropology. So in liberal anthropology, there's sort of the idea of, of man as an individual uh, with individual wants and needs, and society is only constituted to satisfy the individual wants and needs. Um, and I think that's just completely wrong. Um, I think, you know, I always sort of cite, you know, what they taught us in third grade or whatever, where, you know, they take us down to the library to like read books to us. And, and one of the things they taught us was like, okay, there's, there's like a few basic human needs. There's food, water, shelter, clothing, and belonging. And this kind of stuck with me because it's interesting how little that actually gets emphasized um, in the liberal ontology, that that need for like, okay, I actually need to belong to something and I need purpose and I need this, I have this social need. Um, and, and so I think something that's heavily underemphasized is that people do want to know how they fit into the cosmos. Like this is one of the fundamental psychological facts about humanity is that we want to know how we fit into the grand purpose structure of the cosmos. And, and actually, so one interesting consequence as a result of instant access to uh, mass media that's updated by the minute is that all of these institutions uh, that, that used to be uh, somewhat more free from, from that, that provide meaning, that used to be somewhat more free from rapid fire criticism, is that uh, mass media allows the easy delegitimization of these institutions, like you can find any institution and you can find everything about that institution that would cause you uh, to, to completely lose faith and hence undermine your ability to uh, obtain meaning from that thing once it's been discredited. Yeah, and of course that uh, depends, like which institutions actually get destroyed in that manner depends heavily on who controls the information stream. Sure, of course, yeah, of and, course. And so like when the mainstream controls the information streams, then like you know, it can, it can control the information that would, uh, cause trouble for people's belief in the system, uh, and, and thereby make sure that people kind of remain integrated in the main social structure. When you get a bunch of this alternative, uh, information stream structure in society, you end up with, uh, people hearing, you know, a lot of the negative sides from a lot of people who kind of have some beef with the system and, and it really, um, yeah, delegitimizes a bunch of stuff. So I go a little further on that. I, I wonder if we could even uh, apply this logic to the, the underworld that we're talking about. Uh, you could posit perhaps that there are two underworlds, sort of one kind of acknowledged and tolerated underworld uh, that still maintains these relationships and one that is actually opposed and is sort of the true underworld, if you want. Um, and the, the example I might give here, you look at, for example, the, the Bloomsbury group um, in, in British society, you know, th this group of uh, literary people and intellectuals who were considered quite rebellious and uh, were deviating from established social norms uh, and the like. But in fact, they all became influential people in society, not after their deaths or anything, but in their lifetimes. They had access to circles of power and cultural influence, and uh, you know they had quite um, 
they asserted a, a dominance over the culture of their time, at least parts of it, the, the high culture. Uh, you could take, on the other hand, um, the Soviet spiring, say, in Cambridge, right, which was part of an underworld itself, but one where the institutions of power in the, so in the society recognized it as an enemy and acted against it. And in that case, the institutions of power actually coordinated to crush this underworld. This was sort of an actual... You know, if you think of the underworld as a place where, like, dark entities exist that can't be allowed in polite society, um, you, you end up kind of getting, this is the true underworld, the one where power actually coordinates against it. The other one is just kind of a purgatory, right? You're, you're there for a bit, you're not in uh, the center of things, but eventually you actually get onboarded. Yeah, well, and I think one of the major differences between those is just, like, their political positioning, um, like obviously the Soviet spy ring is 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 very directly a foreign projection into British society. Right, right? but drawing uh, on radicalized elements of the yeah. underworld in that society. I, I think another another so an example of like uh, maybe a third type of underworld that, or I'm not sure how this would fit into your ontology is like, you know, the punk scene or something where it's like you've got a bunch of people who are just alienated from society and they're acting out, but they're not really coordinated with any like large foreign or even domestic, um, real like political problem though. Occasionally they, they are like these, these things, you know, once you're out of main society, you're not regulated by the mores of main society. There's always like any kind of oppositional political stance is going to draw from those circles a lot of the time. Um, but I think there's like, like, so there's a lot of this stuff that's just kind of, it is in some sense at the bottom or at the outside of society, but not necessarily like something. Yeah. Like, well, the, the, the difference could be who, who ends up asserting coordinating control over it. Maybe that is the difference. I, I haven't fleshed out an ontology here by any means. Yeah. But, punk but, of course got co-opted. Yeah. Punk, punk, punk became marketed, uh, on mass, uh, where, you know, other subcultures, uh, did not. I mean, like the, the Hare Krishnas say out of out of counterculture scenes. Uh, I mean, they grew quite strong, but they never really became something that you could market on mass to the American public. They're mm -hmm. just kind of this like weird folk memory of uh, you know crazy stuff that happened in that period of history. Right. I just have to, to interject for a second. The Bloomsbury example that you gave, Ash strikes me as a good example of, of a successful 20-year-long bet on an ideological asset. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, if you think about it, these people, purely because of their social circles, you know, they knew the discussions happening among those who would become powerful in 20 but of years. Course, of course, the uh, analogy to markets is, is imperfect because they were in the correct uh, circles such that uh, it, it was not merely a a bet that they placed on forces that they had zero control. No, this was insider trading. <laughs> Something like that, and then they had, uh, you know, they hired a bunch of uh, PhDs in math to uh, to paper over to provide research in case the uh, SEC wanted yeah, to know what was up. That was Keynes's role. Our, our metaphors are getting pretty confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but l l let me. I want to. I want to bring up because um, we had kind of question what is the role of liberalism in this and and i want to step out of uh the, the sort of bottom or, or close-up discussion for a moment and just elaborate something here which i i think 
lets us distinguish between liberalism and sort of the, the structures that it's coming out of. And that's that you have this phenomenon that happens repeatedly and has happened repeatedly for the last 200 years where uh, crisis events occur and uh, power actors within liberal societies have to engage in these civic rebuilding initiatives. The thing is, in any society where liberalism first enters, so to speak, and especially in its social forms, you have pre-existing institutions that uh, predate that. And what ends up happening is that liberalism in every society in a way uh, mobilizes and starts orienting those institutions but ultimately cannibalizes them. And, and, so, and you know, the, the, there's lots of people who've written about this um, from, from various standpoints, some from the left, from the right, etc. But um, Well, of course, but, that's not unique to liberalism. That's like any large scale well, Right, change. exactly. But we'll I, I think that there's an interesting thing that happens with liberalism where, uh, and, and it's, not, it's not as if this is a totally alien imposition because you do have things like industrialization happening that make the advent of liberalism become kind of rational from the internal logic of the structure. But uh, what ends up happening is that when a crisis event occurs that requires those institutions which liberalism has often weakened, then that's where you now start to get the social contradiction that occurs where the the institutions of power that had benefited from liberalism start having to suspend the liberal norms at least in terms of like the radical individualistic model and you know sometimes they'll have to fall on the state's power sometimes it'll be right. kind of this friendly yeah, yeah. philanthropic initiative but I, I think what ends up happening there is not so much that, like, liberalism is fixing itself, but that the base conditions have, you know, ceased to operate efficiently for a moment. And I think the proof here is that, um, you know, and this would maybe be an, a harder argument to make in the 1890s or even, you know, the 1920s, 30s, and 40s when, when you had uh, more of this happening. But at this point, uh, I, I think we've seen that when crisis events have passed— the structure seems to return to its basic logic, right? And so after a generation of this kind of post-FDR settlement in the U.S., um, the internal logic of, of, of capital in this case seemed to reassert itself, and those agreements were eroded and gutted. And, uh, you know, now for the last 40 years, we've we returned to status quo. Now there's a crisis-level event again, and once again, people are having these same discussions, and it's sort of the cycle repeats itself. That's a very interesting analysis. Yeah, and so, so like to make that more concrete, uh, the the big salient example in recent memory in American society is the you know pulling out of the Great Depression with the FDR centralization and and economic stimulus and just general rebuilding of society, and then World War One, the early Cold War, the, all these things like this intense state driven functional organizations of society towards. Uh, collective endeavors, you know, capped off with the Apollo mission, um, landing on the moon, etc. Um, and it's it's sort of um, that kind of stuff happens. Um, I, some people have said, sort of as as the national security object, um, the, the national security exception to liberalism, which is like liberalism tends to liberate the individual and like uh, sort of dissolve social fabric and, and not have any higher purposes in society, except when liberalism itself is threatened, in which case it re 
asserts all that stuff. It boots it all back up for the purposes of protecting liberalism's hegemony. And then uh, when that threat has passed, it, it you know, it for some reason shuts it all down again. And, and you know, we go back to, to kind of like the growing wealth inequality, decaying social fabric, etc. of of the like the characteristic of like peacetime liberalism. So like war, you might you might say like wartime liberalism is extremely different from peacetime liberalism. It's, yes. Um, yeah. And 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 wartime can of course mean you're not necessarily only against other human adversaries, but against also uh, just any kind of general crisis level uh, situation like the Great Depression. And um, that's that's just a very interesting feature of liberalism is that it it like it when it's threatened it it turns away from its fundamental nature and goes to something else that's kind of like much more effective at uh at securing collective existence and and security and and the internal whatever internal structure is wanted and then during peacetime kind of goes back to is social disarmament, so mm. to speak. Well, and I find it endlessly fascinating how, um, and as this is drawing on personal uh, anecdotes and experience a bit, but when I interact with people in business, they're much more aware of this, at least on a local, sort of localized level, than people operating more abstractly in academia. So the example here, um, you know, when it comes to things like uh, financialization of the economy or sort of these unproductive sectors, which seem to still leach wealth out of the productive sectors because of things like speculation. The places I see those things talked about are like business schools, whereas people who are trapped in, say, economics departments, uh, I mean, the, the discussion does happen there, too. But like the the old orthodoxy seems to be a lot stronger there than, you know, with those people who are kind of up against the front line. Uh, and this is something you wouldn't really expect, right? Because the, uh, the the narrative goes something like, you know, you have your cutthroat, realistic, hard-headed private sector and then these kind of weird, idealistic uh, academic sectors. But really, uh, it, it's it's almost the opposite in my experience, where in the business sector, and I think this is especially true in the Bay Area ecosystem, but here in Toronto, I see it as well, other cities I've been to, the, the, this debate about, you know, pessimism and optimism is something we've discussed before. It's happening on the business side and the openness to like, maybe we need to think quite radically as to how to solve these problems comes from that side of things rather than the academy, which is still in many ways stagnating either in these old orthodoxies, you know, we just need some marginal level fixes or they kind of end up going off the deep end and, and get wrapped up in the crisis. That's because it's, it's particularly difficult to build models of a complex economy or particular areas in the economy where you actually have zero experience of the realities on the ground. I'm, I'm of the view that probably a bunch of Uber drivers have, just with their observations, uh, come up with some ideas that could be crystallized into Nobel Prize economics research. Or no, I absolutely Ubers. believe Uber, this. Uber drivers hear a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I completely believe this. They're not, you know, they're not uh, capable of doing this themselves. But you know, if you pay attention to what they have to say, what other people 
of, uh, you know, Uber drivers are just a, uh, a stand in here for a lot of other practitioners who are right on the ground, who are kind of savvy and street smart and form their own kind of implicit models that researchers can can then take and flesh out and make more explicit and and uh, more more palatable. Yeah. So this this to like to, to chase that discourse. to chase that uh, tangent a little further. Uh, that reminds me of the origins of Lyme disease in or like discussion of Lyme disease in the academy. Um, you know, you sort of imagine, oh well, Lyme disease. That's just some disease. There's a bunch of disease tracking professionals at the disease control, you know, center for disease control or whatever, or the epidemiology academy. And they go around looking for things like that and they characterize them and blah, blah, blah. But, um, and that's sort of how the academy presents itself and presents what happened. But then, you know, if you read past, you know, who are just the names on the papers and actually try to figure out, well, how did they get onto the case in the first place? You find that, behind that I, I saw reference to this the other day i forget where but you find that some the actual initial energy for the investigation of lyme disease came from um at least one i forget if it was multiple or just one like militant moms who had noticed uh a, a certain pattern of symptoms and knew that it wasn't what the doctors were telling them and so they started really tra chasing that intuition and going and harassing um well, that may perhaps not harassing, but but going and, and talking and pressuring, talking to and pressuring um, a bunch of experts to try to get them to actually look into the thing more seriously. And so you have this interesting phenomenon where the actual knowledge came from these people completely out, or the actual initial insight came from people completely outside the academy and the academy managed like only sort of almost reluctantly uh, allowed itself to launder those people's insights into the language of the academy. Um, so I found that to be an interesting case. I don't know many of the details. It just reminds me of that, that I saw that story the other day. Um, That's not the, the only example, too. I remember reading a, a recent article about uh, someone who was obsessed with his own illness and obviously doctors being who they are usually are inclined to write off things they they don't fully grasp as as psychosomatic it, it just is the case that they tend to dismiss uh things that haven't made themselves uh part of existing uh medical research uh and that will only be made part of of research maybe 20 years down the road so i think and and only if someone really makes a deal out of it that's correct and that, that person has to be part of the medical class yeah, or, or able to able to like network into that class well enough to get their case. And, and people have done this. It's, yeah. it's just it's just rare because it's so it's so difficult. Yeah. And that's interesting. So this this comes back to like the wartime versus peacetime structure of liberalism and, and Ash's discussion of like, you know, the business people having in a way like the, the actually more idealistic and more uh, collectively oriented vision of society. Uh, in terms of like, how do we solve our problems as a, instead of instead of the stuff that goes on? Well, in and somewhat more risk prone, even if not risk prone in like an absolute or historic sense, at least more risk prone than the kind of extremely theory centric ass uh, you, you uh, parts like of the institutions. Risk tolerant. Risk, yeah, ri sorry, risk tolerant, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, but but I find this I find this interesting, and I think it's more than just like the academy kind of sucks these days. Like you know, a lot of people have the story. It's like oh yeah, it's just decay or whatever. Um, allow me for a minute here to to put forth a 
a, um, a more sinister theory, which is that the, like, y you know, the, the system kind of keeps around the, the, some of these, uh, some of these more like collectively oriented, um, ways of thinking. I, I noticed this also in engineering, um, that engineers have a much more like idealistic vision, uh, idealistic and like holistic vision of society than, uh, than like elsewhere in, in sort of the more powerful branches of academy. Um, the, like it keeps that stuff around so that, you know, when, when the national security exception needs to be called and you boot up the, the strong part of society again, um, you know, you still have that stuff around. I don't know how purposeful it is, but it's interestingly following this logic. Um, and, but like, for some reason, the system is kind of somewhat hostile to that stuff. And so among the most fashionable and central and powerful branches of the academy, it kind of like somehow systematically undermines that way of thinking. And not, so it's not just like, oh, these ones decayed, but it might be that these ones like, uh, perhaps something a little bit more active than that. And I, I don't know whether this is like, it's just kind of an interesting hypothesis that occurs to me. I don't know how, how strong that is, but like, it's it, like liberalism does have this interesting logic of basically the suppression of that kind of thought, uh, and the suppression of that kind of social structure in society. And, um, I just kind of wonder how much that's related to what's going on in the academy and and like how active that is. I, I'm curious whether you have thoughts, Ash, kind of with more experience in the academy. Uh, could you just I'd like you to just clarify something. So when when the the academy, say, is looking at this, uh, the institutions you're discussing are political institutions. Um, like which institutions are are you seeing them as? attributing a more active or of nefarious agency toward so i don't know where where any of this is coming from like i'm just kind of talking about it in an abstract sense of like liberalism sure. for whatever reason is kind of defined by its hostility to collective pursuits and collective idealism and um and that but on the other hand that stuff is like kind of psychologically very natural to people and very powerful in times of great need um, and then, and then like in, in periods where liberalism is able to like, uh, kind of ignore great collective need, it, it just kind of goes back to suppressing those things as is its usual logic. Um, and, and I just like, I would imagine that would happen first in the places that are sort of like most coordinated with whatever the establishment is. And, and so in academy, right. that would be economics and, you know, law, for example, law, yeah. et cetera. Um, like I think the, law the, is the, actually a really good example of this, um, where when, especially when you have like radical shifts in regimes, um, societies of law and the like are often ones where like very tough battles get fought. I think this is even true in, in less radicalized times. Um, so uh, here in Canada, for example, there was kind of a culture war battle that happened in the, the legal field where uh, a, a sort of private Christian school called Trinity Western had tried to start its own 
uh, law school, basically, and they they face sort of opposition from across the board of the the various legal associations in each of the other provinces. I think there's definitely this awareness of the political, you could say, within the right. field of law that maybe doesn't exist. Um, like economics tends to talk about policy, law tends to talk about politics, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and I but, think but that I mean, there's this, this happens in economics as well. It seems. You know, I mean, in practice, yes. And th I think this this gets to the the answer um, on a broader level is like just because the liberal narrative exists as the justification does not mean that power has ceased to exist in a society. And when a crisis happens, you know, we've kind of I think earlier in the discussion we were we were talking about things like well, centralized, you know power structures or whatever have to back these fixes. But in crisis periods, it's actually what you see is a fragmentation of power structures. You start seeing splits and conflicts happening within them. And what generally ends up happening is that some coalition, right, uh, maybe even a minority within those structures are able to outcompete their rivals and uh, kind of play a game where they bring in certain outsiders uh, and and are able to weaponize them against rivals that they see as either in conflict or maybe even sometimes legitimately see as outmoded or incompetent. I mean, this was the Industrial Revolution on the political level, right? It was the rising right. capital class against the aristocracy. M Marx calls us the Bonapartist uh, phase where you have segments within the, the, the upwardly mobile ruling class, if you know, to use that sort of language, um, making deals, as it were, with lower sections of the society to attack their own rivals. And, and you have warfare uh, within the ruling institutions. So I think that is usually the normal state of affairs. And insofar as in a crisis scenario. And so I would attribute things like suspicion from places like the academy less to an inherent suspicion of power but more that when you're in a situation where now um, some kind of unified response is necessary, it's extremely dangerous to not be the one in control of that response. And if you suspect that your rivals might start turning on you, and we see this somewhat today, I think, with um, the, 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 the conflicts between tech and DC and the Beltway, uh, where that suspicion is very high because on a purely political level, there's an incentive for some people within the political institutions to uh, target big tech. Um, you know, and, and I, I, this is kind of regardless of the justification behind that, what all that's necessary is for there to be um, a conflict where one of them feels that there might be some unified response that puts them on the receiving end. And when so that are, happens, are, you will try to delegitimize it. So are you are you then proposing like a basically structural explanation of my observation uh, of like uh, liberalism suppressing uh, what I might call collectivity? I like, think the liberal collectivity, collectivity creates these incredible. I think of liberalism power. certainly lends itself to that kind because if you know, let's take two versions of this. So you have the Green New Deal version of let's mobilize society. And generally speaking, right, because the academy tends to be, you know, at least on the surface level left leaning, uh, people kind of like that idea. And I think they, you know, a lot of people would see that as 
being a response that they're involved in. And, you know, people who are involved in Green New Deal type activism are generally not hostile to the academy. Uh, even when things like divestment come up, right, that's usually being forwarded by entire departments within the universities. On the other hand, you have the more kind of right-wing populist responses, and those tend to be hostile to the academy on, on, on cultural grounds and the like. And so the language of liberalism can be drawn on pretty effectively there in order to delegitimize that. So I, I don't think that... I think it is structural, but that's not to say that liberalism is kind of irrelevant in this. Liberalism is effective in a way that other ideologies might not be. I guess this comes back to like, you know, inherently in any society, the structure and the narrative are deeply intertwined. And like the the narrative is the kind of thing that is the natural narrative within the structure that you have. And the narrative supports that particular structure in sort of a mutually reinforcing way. And so it's like perhaps difficult to dissociate like, well, is it the idea of liberalism or is it the like structure of this um, uh, like semi-decentralized bourgeois civic society um, organization that, that's causing like the, this particular hostility to a particular way of thinking in some academic departments or, or whatever. Yeah, well, and you can see people will, uh, what happened historically in, in the US at least was that the definition of liberalism itself uh, you know, they actually try to sort of update it to include certain progressive tendencies, which are in pretty extreme tension with more, uh, you know, the, the, the older forms of liberalism that hadn't necessarily been uh, on the radical left. And, we, we, you know, we still inherit the confusion to this day. Yeah, but it, but it retained actually that, like, sort of fundamental structure of, of like, the, the at the top level the thing is not functionally organized towards collective ends and and is somewhat hostile to that that's what my analysis there would be like th there is a lower level structure which is acting on liberalism and of which liberalism is an expression in these weird crisis periods you can see that because the structure liberalism will kind of have weird fluctuations in its stated value systems and so on as a result of actions and adaptations happening on the in the power structure. Now, if we take the view that liberalism is in some sense like a very authentic expression of that power structure, because maybe non-liberal forms of, say, social solidarity are inimical to that structure, then yeah. we can expect a return to liberalism, but it is still an expression of the structure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this, I, I think we've sort of like closed that thread, and mm. it was a little bit off topic, but I thought it was very interesting. God, it was valuable. It's it's it, yeah, yeah, this no, is theory it, building. Yeah, absolutely. No, super interesting stuff, um, and we're going to want to talk about that more later. Um, perhaps we'll find a way to to work it into upcoming articles. But um, I want to let, let, let's then switch to something um, maybe more practical. So, looking at Keegan's article about video games, is there anything? Like, what do you have to say? Like, we have obviously this article, we have the analysis um, of sort of like the social rot of video games, but what do you say specifically to someone who says, uh, you know, just like the, the, the data would say, I'm actually pretty happy, even more happy, dropping out of the workforce and, you know, relying on my, you know, boomer parents to house me and, and feed me and so on. 
And in fact, playing Team Fortress 2 all day uh, is way better than, you know, trying to make what, my way through a, a very unrewarding, sort of um, uninteresting, um, unfulfilling uh, world out there with a social fabric that hardly even exists anyway. So what's the yeah what's yeah the point? so so I think I think like from an individual perspective, like it's hard there, depending there's... depending on your depending on your like you know ultimate value structuring and like metaphysics or whatever. It, you know, you may or may not find the happiness of the experience machine or or video games <laughs> or whatever compelling. Um, and if you do find it compelling, like I you know I don't necessarily blame someone for that. Like society you know if society is not actually providing uh, a compelling narrative of participation then you know people are at some point going to go elsewhere and some of those elsewheres are going to be fake yes i, th um, I think this is a matter of of society shifting on the margin and not a matter of yeah yeah no this is not about i don't think this is about the individual except in the sense that like perhaps a more skilled and willful individual could find ways of integrating themselves into society's structure a more, more so than someone who didn't have those skills. A, a certain number of people are going to be able to like watch Jordan Peterson videos or, or read Jordan Peterson books and come to the conclusion that no matter how difficult and Sisyphean it is out there, they're going to do it anyway. And yeah, and I mean, but that, that, that is a very small, actually small number of people. But that might also be like a false consciousness in a sense of yeah, like, is, and, is that yes. even the right move for those people? Is it actually doing them any good? Um, and, but, but I, I think the division I would draw is like, so there's people for whom like video games can work. But at their current skill level, their current like level of, of willpower and and discipline and so on and, and creativity or whatever it is that makes people work in society, uh, society's not working for them. And like at some sense, at some level, that's like, OK, you could say that it's a problem for the individual. But on the other sense, like, are we systematically expecting too much of individuals in our society? Um, I, I would say that I think it is largely on the shoulders of yes. society. I, and when I was talking previously about uh, individual-centric vices or self-directed vices, it's not the sort of thing that... It, it's a bad spiral because most individuals do not have, at, at that level, the agency to get, to get outside of themselves and get out of that circumstance. Yeah. In, and, in a sense, like, something is, is holding them down... And they're not sort of like... Well, it's not uh, that they're holding them down. It's just like they don't have I'm any using opportunities. That in a loose way. They don't have any opportunities. I'm, I'm losing, using that in a, in, a, in a pretty loose way. But sure. they, they fundamentally don't have the ability to go up against society on a one-to-one -one level. And, and so I put video games kind of in the same class as, as drugs, mm -hmm. as, I, as I put it in with, uh, with pornography, and I'll, I'll put that in the same class as, as anything else that, that kind of takes advantage of, of uh, weakness of will or lack or, of agency. Yeah, or, or, even, or even like all the pre-internet subcultures, right? Where it was like kind of a bunch of misfits getting together and like creating their own fun outside of the structure of society. And, I, and I, so I think the first thing to acknowledge to make real progress on this problem is that grayscaling your phone is not really the solution here you know it, you cannot do 
individual level tweaks to save yourself yeah well and the other thing is that there's kind of like uh actually the whole other side of of the video games article like we've been talking kind of about the social collapse side but the whole other side was was keegan's argument that you know not only is this an escape it's predatory yeah i mean just just and, develop and like, self-control bro yeah it does not, not work against like a bunch of people who are like their their job it is a bunch of very talented professionals whose job it is yes. to like manipulate you into spending your time on this it's not yeah it's not simply that society has unconsciously found its way into uh, developing incredibly a- addictive uh individual vice activities right it's yeah. it's in fact, a lot of capital is being directed yeah, yeah. this way. No, I, I think that's something that, like, um, we tend... I, I think, again, this comes back down to, like, liberal ontology of society. Like, the the places where we acknowledge kind of... I don't know if social responsibility is the right term, but, like, but places where we acknowledge that, like, okay, the individual is not actually going to be able to pull themselves out of this. They're not in any position to handle this, and this is society's problem. Those places are, like kind of exceptions you know we talk about that with sometimes with crime sometimes with welfare uh stuff like that but um or or things that are are kind of like more directly considered to be social pathologies um but but the they, those sort of feel like exceptions in some way and the default response within the ontology is like oh well the individual should pull themselves up by the bootstraps yeah, yeah. Well, and, and like it's this. it's their fault that they're, they're not doing that no there's yeah, two there's think... two statements here basically and this is how i generally tend to think about you know in video games but the the drug crisis there's a lot of these these social vices two statements that can both be true but are almost never made by the same people and the first statement is yes your desires are actually disordered in some sense uh the second statement is that's not entirely your fault because you are not the master of your desires that you think you are uh there there is actually a larger scale structure that you are involved in that shapes you to a very deep level and the 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 second one is sometimes used to kind of um abdicate responsibility or something like this the first one is used to ignore the social structures but actually both those statements can be true and i think are true and that's where uh that's the start of the analysis essentially the first step of becoming skeptical of the liberal under like of liberal anthropology of the individual is taking a lot of acid and realizing that in fact you are just part of an ecological whole. <laughs> That's and crazy, bi- dude. Have you ever done DNT? <laughs> there's bidirectional causation there. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm and I'm joking, of course. You know, palladium does not endorse drug usage. Yeah, we, we absolutely mind, not. Mind-altering substances are haram. <laughs> that being said, uh, I think something like if that if that in fact does cause you to come to a more realistic conception of the way individuals act on society and society acts on individuals, then then fine. We come to uh, the correct positions often in in very strange ways, and sometimes it's. It's often experiential. So this this actually brings me back to like I did actually want to close that thread on on liberal versus non-liberal um, anthropology, like where there's this big ignored thing, which is people wanting like so the psychological drive of placing yourself in the grand narrative of the cosmos. 
And so I want to elaborate on that a little bit um, that I think, I think it's like an important element of theory behind a lot of the stuff we're talking about here. Um, so it seems to be the case that like people don't just have sort of individual desires and wants in the sense of like, Oh, I want to get fed. I want to like, you know, uh, survive. I want to have kids or whatever. Like these are all very individual oriented things, but people obviously don't have just those desires. Um, people have all these, these more grand cosmic level desires. And I think that's where things like religion and so on come from is we're sort of made in a way that we want to know our place in the cosmos and we want a story for that and we want to participate in some great narrative and we want to feel purposeful within some great narrative and um i think this is just a psychological fact about people um you know feel free to disagree with me but i think it's fairly obvious um that that people have this need and and then so like within like a liberal individualist society there's this question of how does that need ever get met right and and so like you know one way is you know you you know despite living under a liberal regime you continue going to church or like you know you have some spiritual outlet that places you in 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 some ordering or ordering relation to the cosmos and interestingly that stuff is always like if you look at examine the kind of implicit story that it's telling about the future it's always like this is going to fundamentally change society everyone's going to become kind of thinking our way in the future and this individualism thing's going to go away or like somehow this is going to create some utopian event or or just like general social change or whatever over time so that people will have this larger collective integration around some cosmic narrative. And like, this is the case for like new age spirituality. It's the case for Christianity. It's the case for uh, many of these things. And that, that interestingly puts them in kind of this opposition to liberalism. Like despite existing under liberalism, they are not of the liberal system. And in fact, their narrative is, is like contradictory to the liberal narrative. Um, and so I find that interesting, but just continuing to tra trace the thread here. Um, so people have this need to, um, you know, fit themselves into the cosmos. They find ways to do that in their personal life narrative. And sometimes it's like, it's not as organized as religion. Sometimes it's like extremely disordered. Like they never actually think about it, but somewhere in the back of their mind, they have the belief that they personally are the Messiah and like, they're going to, you know, somehow fix everything in some future time once they stop playing video games. Um, or like, like people can have all kinds of weird stuff around this, but I think it's a fact that everybody has it. Um, and, and then, so the question is like, how well does society actually give an answer to that question? Does society say, here's your position within our society. Here's the ultimate cosmic meaning of our society. Here's what we're collectively trying to do. Um, and here's how we all fit together and work together towards some like grand cosmic end. Um, does it do that? Or does it kind of like say, actually, that's just a matter of your private preference. It's like what, like how you do your hair. It's just totally your own choice. And we're, we're not going to acknowledge or support or, or, you know, in some cases allow uh, any larger expression of, 
of those social needs. We've privatized cults. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Cults are just yes. Oh, let you, the market you, handle it. Yeah, yeah. You you need some. You need cosmic meaning. Oh well, here this particular part of town or the internet or whatever the market will provide that thing. But like, in a sense. I think you have to look at that and you have to see like, okay, it's not just that the market provides it and then that, that's okay because as long as you have this structure whereby it's like the market providing it, the thing is in some sense fake. It's like you, it's providing a story whereby you're going to get what you want, but you don't actually get what you want. And But doesn't the church do this and the church would fall under the market? Uh, yeah. So within the liberal kind of structure of society, the church is like, okay, here's here's our story for how you're going to get what you want. And as long as the actual structure of society is is set up such that that will never happen, like that whatever the social narrative of your church is will, will not actually work, then that is in some sense fake. And I think now, I, you know, you could argue how much that matters, but I think I think like there is this significant issue of like are you giving people fake uh hope and 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 maybe just from a totally cynical perspective like perhaps the only reason that the fake hope like that it matters that it's fake is because you know people occasionally figure that out and become very alienated and radicalized the problem as well though with privatized cults is the same problem as with any other market is that well what do you do when market failures exist because there's no like clean air act for cults uh with toxins that are say in rivers or or in the air like you can have taxes or or quotas or whatever you can have marginal solutions that coexist just fine with the fundamental liberal claims but the moment you start doing that with cults you're now in a fundamental contradiction and i think what ends up happening here in practice is that like to not do that would be a threat to uh the existing power so obviously it will act and what ends up happening is that you therefore have to um tolerate more and more contradictions in that relationship between like in a, a party line that all goods that the ultimate good or whatever is private and the actual fact that that can never be the case um and you know sometimes it kind of has these stable equilibria like when the you know mo most cults were actually beneficial because they opposed say soviet communism you you end up having equilibrium but then in cases where uh they start becoming adversarial and things like social mores toward um w what is being promoted uh within the power structure then uh, the the power structure has no choice but to act and that's when the contradictions begin to become very obvious let's say we expected society in the next two years to develop a comprehensive vision of the good or at least a serious <laughs> collective endeavor and said uh this is the thing that's going to pull people out of their basements and and get them involved in in healthier uh, civic participation yeah pro-social activities which is which would be good for society and good for themselves that's obviously not going to happen and so when we're talking about privatized cults or just cults in general i think you know the much more likely thing to happen is that someone solves the social fabric problem by uh solving the uh the uh 
mechanisms of digital that have have led to accelerated decline of social fabric and i think what that thing looks like is a a cult or or religious movement and that thing whatever it looks like is going to be very 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 weird and strange but it's going to need to be uh like that is the collective mechanism by which you're going to be able to pull individuals out of the yeah, so, video game, smartphone, internet, so, uh, social media world, I think. Okay, so I, I want to respond to this. So, like, it's obviously not going to be the case that, that magically society in the next two years comes up with a substantive notion of the good and then applies that to some grand collective endeavor. Um, and, and therefore, like, if the problem's going to be solved, like you say, it's going to be through this kind of social fabric uh, cult almost aspect the and so the interesting and the, and the innovation there yeah is that the, they are able to come up with a realistic solution to tech yeah yeah a realistic and, solution. And, but but like i think you can't separate the existence of social fabric from the story that social fabric tells about how it accomplishes like the cosmic level goods Right. Yeah. And, and so it's going to have a story. And so the extent that it's real and serious and strategic, it's going to be obviously opposed to a society that is not providing those goods. Yes. And so like you, you, we have this interesting. That's why I mean, when I say it's going to be very, very, very strange. It's, but it's not it just going to be strange. It's going to be like hostile to surrounding society. Right. Like if that to the extent that you're providing. Yes. To, to the extent that you are both a providing social fabric that people can believe in and b the thing is organizationally real and has strategic people in, at the top of it like in some sense that's like i i, I would hesitate to use the word revolutionary because that's like a very a small subset of that kind of thing but like that's one way that that could manifest is it could be a revolutionary movement where you are talking about this total reorganization of society and that's what the people there actually believe in yeah and um i mean the tr the trick is to make sure that this cult being so absolutely opposed to mainstream society does not become self-destructive or violent yeah or, or destructive, destructive to the rest of society yes yeah and so there's yeah so there's this really interesting challenge of like well how do you actually but unfortunately my intuition is that mainstream society will not be able to understand what's being done there and so will uh push it into uh negative categories that that group will then adopt for itself yeah yeah so so you have this you have this problem of like just fundamentally what's going on is hostile to at least the narrative of mainstream society and it's like to the extent that the mainstream society is like attempting to uphold its sort of individualistic freedom narrative um it's going to be opposed to like any kind of powerful movement that like has some alternate conception of the good. And then there's these, yeah, the, like you say, there's this, this very strong psychological effect, uh, in kind of the existing propaganda environment where when you put yourself in opposition to society, while society has already offered you a nice buffet of options of what that looks like. And by default, you're just going to kind of pick one of those and and those things are all in some sense poisoned they are they are things that are really actually kind of stupid and it causes you to act out in in stupid ways it causes you to sabotage yourself and um and, and when you know when when you 
begin acting that way, it causes everyone else to, it causes you to be discredited in the eyes of everyone else because you're actually just acting like an idiot and, and, or, or becoming hostile to society in some way. And, and so like, this is this big challenge of like overcoming not only the narrative of society, but all of its kind of poisoned alternative narratives, um, to create something that is truly different and independent that solves these big cosmic level social problems. But then you have the additional problem of like, okay, well, how do you actually make that not a violent or, or destructive revolutionary movement? You have to be very, you have to have a, a self-confidence and, and like very conscious of the fact that you are intending not to be yeah, not edgy, to be like one of edgy those rebels or whatever. Yeah, and to fall into categories that are being imposed upon you. Yeah, so, so you would likely act. have a, a a a commandment or an injunction within the structure to not do that. The self conception yeah. has to be that this is a a healthier and more pro social way to live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and to to actually right, exactly to actually solve the problem, you need to have something that considers itself to be a healthier, more pro social way to live. It actually is that mm -hmm. and, and like has the strategic capacity to maneuver itself in, you know, with a long-term strategy that can actually um, pull off some kind of reform away from, from our current pathologies. And, and so I think like... And it also has to be capable of resisting the uh, acid bath of institutional delegitimization because... Yeah, yeah. If you have something like this that has social tech that works to beat this tech problem, but uh, like the people who are running it are are like crazy and violent and self destructive and strange. Yeah, or like they're interested in self promotion, or like the, the yeah. yeah, it goes sideways. Like, and this comes back to like again, what is the actual story going on in those people's heads? Yes. Right. Like, is it? Do they actually? Is, is the story of the thing they're building actually the story that's in their heads or is that just something they say and then what's actually going on in their heads is this narcissism or like yeah. belief that if they get enough attention that everything will be okay or like whatever, right? Like you see these things, you see people end up falling in these, these paths in very tragic ways. Mm, I think the way that you can often test this with any cult is like the, the way that they manifest their opposition isn't by action so much as by refusal to participate in things that they consider damaging and particularly when that's a refusal to participate in things which would otherwise advance them so you know if one thinks of like the right. early church it's like well we feed the poor and we pray for the emperor and the senate and rome and uh we refuse to burn incense to the the deified emperors and so on and by by doing that they distinguished themselves it was an actually very politically significant act that got them persecuted that created martyrs but it was not um a it was not a positively launched attack they were yeah. they ultimately could start gaining sympathizers because you know people started wondering under severe persecutions like well th these people are just like feeding the poor and, and they're not attacking us the way that say m maybe like the way that the germanic barbarians say would have been viewed um in the society uh in that same period um but so they maintained distinctiveness without uh, becoming like toxically consumed 
without real grounds for hostility. And yeah. I think like what happens over time is like the one thing they choose to be hostile on is like one of the weak points of the system where like if if the only reason the system you know is is going to suppress them and attack them and so on is basically that they're refusing to burn incense to the emperor um like eventually it just becomes more elegant for everyone to believe that well maybe that incense thing doesn't really matter anyways yeah these christians are pretty cool yeah, right. and, 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 and I think and at that point it's like they've almost won. Yeah, and I think that this this can to an extent be um, thought of in very uh, conscious strategic terms. So it, you know, if, if one reads, for example, the the epistles of Saint Paul when he's on trial, there's a very clear consciousness, I think, in how he's addressing audiences when he's being accused by, uh, say, Jewish courts. He plays up the fact that he's a Pharisee or was raised a Pharisee and therefore has these ties to factions within the court itself. When it's Romans, he talks about his Roman citizenship. So there's a consciousness there. And ultimately, there is a competition between uh, visions of the highest good. And I think that's something that can't be ignored. Ultimately, that refusal to burn incense will probably manifest in something more stringent, right? Like preaching against idolatry or something. But there's there's ways that uh, a successful cult explicitly gears itself to not enter into a hostile conflict. Yeah, and so, so this, like what you're saying about St. Paul and the early Christians and so on, this gets into, into the issue of like, um, like the, the actually successfully pulling off one of these large-scale social changes in, in sort of the ontology and social structure of society is is like philosophically and strategically very intensive and you need very good strategists at the top um who are capable of imposing like uh of like first of all capable of philosophically figuring out like what the thing is that they're trying to do and and like actually fully occupying it in their own minds and second of all um of uh, capable of creating the strategic discipline necessary to pull the thing off um, and, and it's, it's like just a very difficult thing, which is, of course, why it's so rare. Right. Coordination and boundaries are like both necessary and almost impossible to do on a wide scale. So yeah. here's what I'm really worried about. Uh, religions that have stood the test of time um, tend to be uh, much more healthy for individuals in society than their sort of like startup uh, cult competitors which usually uh, get something fundamentally right, maybe more right uh, than these uh, time-tested older religions. But they are, you know, they, they come and go very quickly because uh, often the motivations are misplaced and it's really right. not, not about what the cult says it's about. And in fact, it's just about, uh, you know, becoming a, a sex cult for the leader or, or just some weird narcissism play and a successful well, those aren't the ones that, that work out in the long those term. Those aren't the ones that work out in the long term uh, because it, it's honestly to get that particular person that decides to innovate in that direction in a, in a positive way, it's much rarer and more difficult than, for example, building a billion-dollar company. Like yeah. It's a much more, more difficult uh, uh, challenge, and it's, and it's much rarer as well. Uh, and so while I would prefer these larger religions to be the ones to solve this problem they suffer from ossification. And so it's not clear that they will be able to uh, create and disseminate this uh, 
set of social technologies to solve the tech problem. And I worry that, in fact, it's going to be done by uh, more destructive uh, flash in the pan cults that are more agile, right? This is just a classic distinction. Yeah. Well, this, this brings me, this makes me want to come back to something that Ash said, which is the idea of these um, sort of more holistic conceptions of the good inherently having a hostility to each other. Um, and I actually want to, to dispute that because I see the possibility you know, I, many of them obviously are going to be stuck in some pattern of hostility, but I do see the possibility of synthesis where like, okay, this cult got these things right and those things wrong. And this cult got these things right and, and these other things wrong. And, you know, in some sense, are they there? It seems possible to create a, an environment of dialogue where they are actually able to mutually recognize each other's goods and, recognize their own faults and actually overcome those things in a way that um, that results in some kind of at least compatibilization or, or like a, a way that they don't actually become fully existentially hostile but, but isn't just just the marketplace again then i mean haven't isn't no, that full no, circle so the, back so the, to the marketplace of ideas no because so the marketplace of ideas is like where there's no there's no conception that there's ever going to be an answer. And it's just like, it, it's sort of treated the way like masturbation is treated. It's like, oh, that's something you have to go and do on your own time. Please keep it private. Like, <laughs> don't bring that to the office. Right. But like uh, what I'm talking about is more like we could imagine a society that had a much more like philosophically agile and philosophically aggressive establishment that would actually actively try to find the points of unity with alternate systems and say okay well here's here's how we can like work out uh like a, a deal uh whereby we both seem to be getting what we want within our respective philosophical systems and like this this kind of would ultimately be predicated well, I, on i think Hold, hold go on, ahead. let me finish yeah, the thought yeah, go ahead. so this would be predicated on the system believing that there is some like kind of some actual truth that these things are all accessing that would be accessible through philosophy. Um, and and the, obviously an openness to that kind of dialogue on the part of the various parts. Now, I don't know how, you know, that's a whole other question, right? But like, I, I want to at least bring open this possibility um, that this could be done. And, and I think historically, you know, obviously the Roman religion isn't around anymore, but but the Roman religion, from what I understand, did work like this. Like they would, in fact, find ways to integrate the like they would go find other societies and they would integrate their gods into their pantheon in a way that actually um, or like they would either say, oh, actually, your God, who your name, you named this is just the same thing that we call that. Or like, oh, you guys have this this new God. OK, well, we will also worship that. Let's all be part of our big grand Roman Empire. And then, of course, sometimes, it, you know, in the case Until of Carthage. Until you run up against an Abrahamic religion. Right. Well, or, or you run up against Carthage and, and you know, the, uh, the, the high priests in Rome decide that Carthage actually worships demons. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, like, what I'm getting at here is just that, like, this is not totally unprecedented, like, pie in the sky thought. Like, this is something that 
could in principle be done. Well, so I, I let me let me touch on. I think that we actually have a recent example of this uh, occurring, and it's in the sort of Europe and America throughout the 20th century, and especially from kind of the post-war era onward, there was a strong push by the Catholic Church to find ways to kind of integrate and reach this kind of accommodation with the liberal order itself. And right. uh, I think that, you know, there was a period when this seemed possible for very, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, which we don't need to go into now, but the geopolitical situation with, with communism, for example, and, and so right, on. Right. The reason this didn't end up working, I think, is that, uh, like, the Roman... When you're dealing with two substantive views of the good, there are obviously aspects that are compatible and some which aren't. Now, with the Roman religion, really the only part that was incompatible is if you refuse to kind of make your obeisance to the Roman state, right? If you did that, mm -hmm. you could pretty much do anything else. But uh, the Abrahamic religions had far stronger demands of the cultures they entered, cultures that they were able to outcompete again. Yeah. But what what ends up happening, and you do actually have this happen, but I think it's always more of an absorption, right? So with, uh, let me use the earlier and later example in the Roman era. Um, yes, you had adoptions of of gods and the like but what this really was was those gods being brought to rome right there it wasn't an equal interaction between the two oh, of course not it's um, never going to be equal in the later the period is, is it yeah. philosophically worked? well so so in the later period you had uh, on the more folk level right when when christianity spread to different parts of uh, of the world, there was always kind of an, an an enculturation that occurred where certain practices became integrated into Christian practice while the forms of worship were abolished and overthrown. But you even had this happen with like Aristotelian philosophy, for example, right? Or Greek philosophy more generally. Um, this was integrated. Uh, but that integration occurs where inconsistencies i think what the narrative always ends up having to be is like our substantive good completes the kind of sublime truths that existed in your imperfect understanding of the substantive good and that can occur that can occur but that is still an absorption i don't think it's correct to consider that as a deal and that does not get rid of the question of power because as with roman carthage if there is a power yeah, conflict not. there is simply you know that absorption of of uh greek philosophy was not going to occur right when persecutions were happening in those regions. It was going to occur later when kind of right. the new structure felt stable enough to retroactively absorb some of this. Yeah, and, and so I guess the way like liberalism tries to pull off this absorption is by kind of it strips out all the all the collectivity and, and sort of cosmic narrative content or like social cosmic narrative. And so it makes it okay, it's purely individual. Uh, you can you can like wear your religious uh, you know your religious garbs like like um, you know Christians will wear the cross or whatever and, and Muslims will you know the women will wear hijab and so on you, you have to file away the rough edges of the shapes of each of these religions so it yeah. fits through the sort of like shape hole of liberalism. yes yeah. and 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 so like I guess what I would say is that like on one sense, obviously these things are getting a bad deal. In another sense, uh, 
like in another sense that that might be just what's required for right you have enough very strong very aggressive competing comprehensive conceptions of the good if you're trying to maintain a certain level of peace and nonviolence, this just practically may be what the deal is yeah and and so i guess like so yeah like it might be that that's just how it works and you do get the dominant sort of imperial religion absorbing the smaller social uh social operating systems that are present in these other religions and and sort of like replacing them um and like you know you might imagine accepting so, that so the imperial and liberal go together in a right way. well the imperial religion is is liberalism right now but basically um but just in general yeah but but like the question then is like is there still a problem and i think i think yes there is a problem and it comes back to like liberalism's hostility to any kind of collectivity and and in fact therefore to social fabric yeah i would actually claim um, that liberalism does the absorption thing less than almost anything else including the roman religion because it uh the game that it plays which is distinctive uh to my mind maybe maybe you know a listener or someone will bring up another example but it is able to radically integrate everything up to the point of the idea of a substantive good right it doesn't even address the question of like um toleration or absorption it's and i i think there was a a good piece that i read recently on this um Ben Sixsmith uh, and the American conservative had written about uh, American liberalism and its sort of interesting relationship with Islam, where it, it commodifies and markets the surface level practices as lifestyles rather than right, signs exactly. of devotion. Uh, but by doing that, it's able to actually, it doesn't even have to reach a philosophical level accommodation of common good. Or, or reconciling substantive good because yeah, it yeah, refuses no, it to even ask that question. Yeah, yeah, it strips out the content and it's like, oh, that's just a fashion subculture. Yeah. Like, or like or what you'll sometimes get is like people will write these think pieces or books claiming that like, oh, the true essence, and maybe this is actually how it, it, it approximates another religion more. <laughs> oh, historically, you know, if we look at Christianity or Islam or whatever it is, uh, they actually were, were all liberals. And so... Uh, right. You know, that is maybe the closest that it gets, but it is not addressing that in explicitly metaphysical yeah. terms. It just has to point to practices that were maybe slightly more tolerant or cosmopolitan and like try to retroactively read in liberal values <laughs> into those uh, norms. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, this this Islamic empire tolerated some other group people group living under its borders one time therefore islam is liberalism or something um yeah so i think yeah it's it strips out the substance it integrates them in like it, it brings these things in this essentially fashion subcultures oh sometimes at least um but like and, and i think what it comes down to the problem is like people are not getting out of liberalism what they were getting out of these other things like that's that's i guess where i would would talk about like whether the synthesis has been successful or not it's like are the people getting out of the new thing what they were getting out of the old thing or has the old thing simply been destroyed by power and then they're allowed to keep like certain mementos of that um and and, and again like you know we've gotten into this long apparent tangent on like religion and so on but i think 
again, this does come back centrally to the question of social fabric because it is my understanding, my belief that the social fabric question is actually inseparable from the question of substantive good. Yeah, no, this is true. And uh, that in itself forces you to address, you know, uh, we kind of take a very structural approach on, on, on Palladium and on these episodes sometimes, but I think that's because then in turn, once you have the idea of substantive good, you have to start looking at the internal logic of the structures that you're living in and asking are they moving us closer toward that or away from it? And if away, how do you mm -hmm. fix this? And of course, substantive, substantive goods can be more and less extreme. Yeah, yeah. Substantive, obviously. Yeah, no, it just, it just means like, is there something that we're actually trying to do here? Yeah. Um, and no, we just want you to be comfortable up until the point at which you yeah. shuffle off this mortal coil. Right. I, yeah, and it's like, okay, that's nice, but, but like, people, yeah, pe people get, get kind of uh, a lot of questions about that. And, and ironically, like, even the comfort seems lacking a lot of the time. Yeah, yep. Um, well, it's like, again, it comes back to, like, what are those, those sort of actually core necessary needs of the human being, right? Like, what are the human what do they call them, like the essential needs or the, the basic needs or whatever. Um, and, and one of them is that social belonging, which I think is inseparable from the, like, what does social belonging mean? It means people accept you as part of their society and a society uh, and, and their social fabric. And that social fabric, I think... Your place in the project. Yeah, inherently, place like in a, a social fabric isn't just like, oh, we're trading with each other. It's, it's somehow about some ends like social fabric is about ends. it places actual duties on you it it yeah it, it places makes you, duties and, and it, it shapes your like, desires as we were talking about earlier but it yeah. even forces you to uh set those desires aside on an individual level yeah and, and this and, is good yeah and people people want that stuff um and i think you can't like you can't escape it and again like i mentioned earlier that like the you know the, the the sort of what we might call wartime liberalism where it's it's got this compelling narrative of of collective need and it's organizing people around that like that's a very psychologically powerful thing and like it, it's kind of hard to avoid that and everyone kind of wants it like i mentioned that it's it it is in some sense very psychologically natural for people to desire that kind of yeah thing. and i think in in uh wartime specifically there is a sense of collective project well there is i mean it's and, like and, okay and, whatever else we got going on we gotta survive yeah, life or death. <laughs> and so and so people start uh uh suicide rates start dropping yeah uh rates of depression start dropping birth rates go up birth rates go up yeah uh well it depends on the intensity of the war on the domestic front right right if it gets if it gets to the point of material intensity uh, like on like at a biological level, then of course birth rates would would drop. But but actually, when it's when it's just a social intensity, it actually. Uh, but war is one of those cases where it's it's an imperfect substitute uh, for an actual more uh, healthy collective project. Yeah, well, it's like instead of instead of going out and striving after some sort of aspirational good you've you've been it's backed in, version you've been backed into a corner and now like you're sort of forced into action by by existential necessity 
but not by like uh, aspiration. Yes. And, and I think obviously like we would rather not be pressed up against the wall of existential necessity all the time as a society. Uh, it seems sort of better to have aspiration. Um, because part of the problem with existential necessity too is that um, there's... Sometimes you fail. <laughs> so, sometimes you fail and the consequences are, <laughs> are absolutely disastrous. And then sometimes uh, it results in sort of an more than an unsympathetic view of, of certain outgroups. Right, yeah, right. It's, it's wartime is this very, like, you're not philosophically nuanced about it. No, you're not at all. And you're, you're, the scapegoating yeah, occurs. Scapegoating, people get treated very badly. Um, yeah, and you and, wake and, up from this collective delusion 30 years later, maybe. Right. Uh, but by then, sometimes it's too yeah, late. Yeah, a, a lot of damage has been done. Anyways, I think, I think we should uh, yeah, yeah. start wrapping yeah. it up now. That's a struggle without war. <laughs> right, right. How do we have struggle without war? Um, yeah. So this has been a, a actually, I think it's been a fairly interesting discussion. We've gone over all this social yes, fabric yeah. stuff, gotten into a number of interesting tangents about the nature of liberalism and religion and so on. Um, yeah, many um, potential pieces here. So uh, send them. Yeah. In. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, I could, I could, we could uh, keep discussing this topic for like three more hours. I think, but we have to cut it off somewhere and, and I think this is about yeah, the right time to do need it. People need to, to unplug themselves from the Palladium podcast and get back to their yeah. families. And so. <laughs> there you go. Well, to everyone out there out there listening, um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we hope someone out there can, in a, in a healthy manner, uh, solve the problem of, of radical individual inadequacy. Um, and so we look forward to seeing how, how the listeners handle that. And, uh, and more thoughts on the subject. And we'll, we'll have more thoughts on the subject as well in, in future episodes. This one was actually one of my, fa one of my favorites. So with that, uh, until next time, see you guys later. Right. Thanks, right. everyone.